Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, and this is another exciting edition of the Remnant Podcast. This week is brought to you by two wonderful sponsors, ZipRecruiter and Donors Trust. We'll hear more about both of them in a little bit. So we're recording this late on Wednesday, and yesterday was the midterms. I don't know if all the listeners know that. And so we wanted to do, you know, sometimes we do rank punditry because we can't think of anything better to do, but sometimes we are called to do rank punditry. Sometimes the gods required it of us. Sometimes we are called forth from the, 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 the adamantine concrete depths of the earth to deliver rank punditry. And when these, when, during such times, one could look no further than one Jim Garrity. Jim, welcome back to the Remnant Podcast. Jonah, it is always a, a joy to join you. And boy, it's nice to know that when you're, no pundits get any ranker than me, huh? <laughs> <laughs> um, you are, you are, we won't even call it rank, but we'll call it, because it's, 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 it's timely. It hasn't grown rank yet. It hasn't no, grown stale. So yeah. it's a fulgent punditry. This is arguably one of my favorite days of the year. Uh, is it really? Because, you know, I, campaigns and elections have always been part of my beat at National Review. Going back to the Kerry Spot days, this is, you know, and it, each month as you get closer and closer to the election, it gets it a little more intense. The, the uh, I don't know, I, I hear on Twitter, you you lament the, was it, are you up to like 500,000 unopened emails in your? No, no, just uh, 221,000. Only 221,000, yeah. So I assume you're getting a lot of the same campaign email releases that I am. Yes. Just pelted all the time. Am I following this race at all? Doesn't matter. They're just going to send it to me anyway. I hit unsubscribe. They put me back on the media list. I block. They find some new email address that, you know, and there's tension and there's tension and there's election night. And then it happens. And some nights it's really terrible. Some nights it's pretty good. Some nights it's really good. And, you know, I, you know, that, this, this morning it's always like, okay, it's done. And, you know, generally I've got a calmer schedule for the rest of the year. But this is always the big exciting one because now we've got, you know, after like months of speculation of what's going to happen, we actually have data. We know what happened. It's not, you know. All right. So what happened? What happened? If you're on the right side of the spectrum, generally rooting for Republicans, the Senate had a great night. Uh, as of now, they picked up three, and they're thinking they got the fourth with McSally in Arizona. And so for, for this Although reason— it sounded like the, the, the Mar- Maricopa, what was the count? Yeah, apparently they take a—so you know, right before I came here, apparently Arizona, um, because it's a dry heat, they count the votes extremely slowly. Uh-huh. And that apparently McSally's first house race, it took him 11 days to figure out who the winner is. So it could very well be a longer wait for the results there than we want. Yeah, um, but my point was is that the— the votes yeah. from Maricopa tended to support cinema. Correct. This is not a this is not a done deal. As of this moment, I believe the margin is something around the seventeen thousand. Uh, by the way, for listeners, I don't have my notes in front of me. I've chosen yeah, to I do can this attest to that. Flying, you know, yeah. blind in my best memory of what the uh, vote totals were. But I think you know, Republicans sounded pretty confident about it. I don't think you can lock it away. I know we've had Dino Rossi up in Washington a couple years ago, the Al Franken first race up in Minnesota where, oh, look, there's a whole bunch of votes we found yeah. in the backseat of a car, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, there's always a possibility of that, but even separate from that. If, okay, if I distracted you. Go back, no, no, big picture, back yeah, to 30,000 no, feet. No, Senate's great. Um, because of this, you saw a lot of people in our world saying, yeah, what a great victory for President Trump. This is, you know, um, and I think don't think you can look at the House and say, oh, no, that was fine. This, there was a bad night in the House. It was a bad, not just the usual ones. Uh, I had done the math and gone district by district, thought Democrats would win 25. They needed 23. Right now, I think they're in the neighborhood of gaining 31. Mm-hmm. There's about a dozen or so out there that still have to be settled. There are a couple where you're like, what the heck happened? Losing the seat in Oklahoma City. Oklahoma City, not deep blue. 
my parents live in the South Carolina First District, uh, Hilton Head, Beaufort County, getting up into Charleston. Uh, Katie Arrington won the seat, uh, won the primary over Mark Sanford. Uh, everybody thought this was a pretty safe seat. Uh, the Democrat, the Democrat Joe, Joe something, Joe somebody, uh, won that one. That was one nobody had on their maps. Uh, otherwise, you know, the argument that Trump is killing Republicans in the suburbs, Decent amount of evidence for that argument. Right. Uh, Dave Bratt, Barbara Comstock, uh, the three districts in Iowa lost three seats in. How many, Jersey. if any, Republican senators or congressmen are there left in Virginia? Are there any? Oh, there's a bunch. Oh, yeah, oh. and way down there. Yeah, um, I, I, they lost most of suburbia. Uh, yeah. Bratt's district was kind of big; basically, got a good chunk of the Richmond suburbs. Uh, Scott Taylor down by Virginia Beach was one that. Really should not have been a loss. This yeah. is a fairly Republican seat. Comstock was the one where we saw that coming. Yeah, northern suburbs. Um, I, I keep occasionally saw some folks last night saying, "Ah, you know, it's northern Virginia suburbs full of immigrants and government workers. Of course, they're going to lose that." Look, Barbara Comstock won, kept this seat when Hillary was winning by ten points. Right. In a non-terror, you know, as long as the environment isn't terrible, a candidate like this is, you know, uh, Frank Wolf had this district before. It's not far from where Tom Davis was connected by. Northern Virginia was not super duper deep blue not that long ago. Right. Trump is just kryptonite here. He just, uh, you know, you can't win when you're a public with your R after your name. Saw that in the gubernatorial election 2017 and we saw it again this year. Um Places like New Jersey, um, places like some of these districts in Florida, suburbs of Texas, uh, and we can get into Beto if you want. Uh, you we, know. Will, we will, we will. Sure. And the governor's races were a mixed bag. I thought that was going to be pretty bad. As of this time, it looks like uh, you know DeSantis won the governor's race, which is a real big surprise of the night. Uh, at this time, it looks like Kemp's got the governor's race in Georgia. <sighs> a short version, he's got 50.5%. He needs 50%. The Democrat, Stacey Abrams, thinks she can uh, – the absentee ballots are going to take them below that 50 percent threshold and they're going to do a runoff. R- Republicans traditionally do pretty darn well in runoffs in Georgia. So Georgia, mm. they, they have a pretty good shot of that one. And even then, she'd have to have a big margin in those remaining absentee ballots out there to get it to that point. But anyway, that's uh, – uh, that's that one. Uh, winning Ohio, Mike DeWine. A lot of Republicans thought that one was gone. Richard Cordre um, – uh, there and uh, and Iowa, um, and so you look at that. Those are those are all four states that Republicans put a high priority on. You're very important for presidential elections, stuff like that. So you know, you know, for Republicans, this really was nowhere near as bad as it could be, and you got some reason to celebrate. If your Supreme Court justices are your big issue, you're you're looking right. at that you know nice big uh, little cushion in the Senate that looks pretty good. Good chance of keeping the control of the Senate, depending on how 2020 goes out. But, you know, shouldn't fool themselves. The, the House went bad. And uh, I don't think – you know, look, you'll get some ones like that South Carolina seat, the Oklahoma seat, pretty – back, if, if not 2020, pretty soon. But they have a problem in the suburbs, and I don't think that can be kind of hand-waved away. Yeah, no, I, I definitely want to come back to that. But let's start with the, some of the Senate stuff. So my favorite – I think my favorite scene – and Jack, you're going to have to use the bleep button on this. <laughs> um, my favorite scene in Scarface is the scene where – Tony Montana is driving the assassin to blow up the car of the guy who's going to speak at the UN. And the deal was that Tony wasn't going to kill any women or children. And then the guy picks up his wife and kids and Tony starts to kind of uh, decompensate as he's driving. He's muttering to himself about, this is so bad. This is so bad. And and then finally he just blows his top and he, he, he shoots the assassin in the face and shouts, Why, you stupid f- Look at you now. Right? <laughs> That keeps coming to my mind um, about Chuck Schumer and his strategy on on Kavanaugh, right? Yeah. It's like, 
there is literally no way it could have blown up worse for Schumer and the Democrats, almost from any angle. I mean, mm. it's like, I mean, yeah, granted, it fed into the suburban dislike, suburban woman, college-educated Republican woman, blah, 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 dislike of Trump. But that was baked in already. Yeah. Right? And also, you know, House doesn't vote in, in uh, Supreme Court nominations. Right. They had. This might have turned out a little bit different. You know, people, right. people know what they do. So how much of the... Because there was all this talk about how the Kavanaugh effect had yeah. been wiped out, and then it looks like maybe no. Wh- where do you put it all in there? Sure. Uh, there was a pretty darn sizable Kavanaugh effect. And if you want to say there was one Democrat whose victory... Most Republicans, at least maybe most, say most conservatives didn't mind one bit. Joe Manchin in West Virginia. Right. Um, because he, he stands out as the example. He's the only one who voted for him. Yeah. And right. to say to Joe Donnelly, to say to Heidi Heitkamp, to say to Chris uh, uh, McCaskill, you know, if you'd voted for Kavanaugh, maybe you'd have a better shot in this. Right. And, and not only that, the other thing is those big three, we kind of knew Heitkamp was going to go down by a wide margin. Indiana, I know you keep you hear people say, oh, it's a polling error. Indiana has a rule where they really don't let you do robocalls and they right. don't let you do stuff like that. So the polling's crazy expensive. Exactly. So you, you see fewer polls out there. Jack likes that because Jack is afraid of robots and he's he, he thinks artificial intelligence is going to run everything. There you go. Robot candidates will rise. Yeah. So, um, he's, he's for soulless automaton Jim Crow. <laughs> that's a that's a different issue. Um, the the why why are you why are you in, I I feel compelled to defend myself. <laughs> I don't I don't do this very often, but I Jim Crow. What they're not human. They're I, robots. Come on. Have you seen the measure of a man by Star Trek: The Next Generation? Would oh, you deny the worst data? Star Trek incarnation. There, so so 90s therapeutic. Ugh. There's no Catherine Lopez to burst through the wall like the Kool Aid Man and say, "No, there's a Star Trek ban in the corner here." There is no Star Trek ban on the remnant. Okay, right, I'm, this so, is a distraction, but it was your fault. I wasn't trying I'm, to impute racism to Jack. <laughs> He's constantly calling for the Butlerian Jihad, which is a Dune thing. He's <laughs> terrified of artificial intelligence. When he house-sits for me, he immediately unplugs Alexa. He's got issues with yeah. all this. He's anyway. not racist. He's robophobic. That's right. Um, right. Okay. Yeah. All right. Now that my name is cleared, I'm, I'm, right. I'm leaving. Okay. Bye. Um, but, so the short version is uh, Indiana ended up being like a 10-point margin. Joe Donnelly was nowhere near. You know, and this made sense in terms of the fundamentals. You know, Indiana is a fairly Republican state. Mike Pence's home state. Um, this is Joe Donnelly won with fifty percent in two thousand twelve with Obama atop the ticket. Uh, Richard Murdoch was not a great candidate. I believe Richard Luger endorsed Donnelly. You know, everything that had broken right for Donnelly six years ago was not breaking right for him now. And right. then you throw the Kavanaugh vote on top of that, and you've, you know. Um, but yeah, I think the pretty dark, look the fact that the Republican did so well in the Senate and didn't see this countervailing effect in the. Uh, House races says to me, oh, well, people were really, really focused on those those Senate races because, you know, why? Well, I have the Kavanaugh vote. I mean, this was the sort of thing that got the Trumpies, the non-Trumpies, social conservatives. Uh, right, no, I agree oh, yeah. that at the time. I mean, yeah. look, I mean, like you had I, – I was guns a-blazing for Kavanaugh, mm-hmm. even though he wasn't my first choice. But I just yeah. thought that whole thing was so ugly that, you know, that was a binary thing. Mm-hmm. Either you're for one set of precedents or another mm-hmm. set of precedents, and I would rather the one that has Kavanaugh mm-hmm. on the court – but but it did seem to sort of dissipate. I mean, it, it, couldn't part of the argument also be that this Trump is just really, really good at activating non-college-educated rural voters, and it wasn't the, the Kavanaugh part? Or I mean, how, how do you tease this out? Will there ever be yeah. a poll that will explain this for us? Um, there was – just right before I came in, somebody was doing – there was some study or something that said that uh, – um, immigration had not been a big motivator for Republican voters this year. And I think that, I think at the very least, it's safe to say 
here's it's it's not even necessarily anti uh, illegal immigration or or anything like that. It's not even like you have to be pro open borders. I think when you drop birthright citizenship out of nowhere, like a week and a half before the election, that doesn't didn't necessarily help. Um, one because it's a complicated issue that even conservatives have some disagreements with suburban about. voters or with the rural with suburban voters. Yeah, I, I think it didn't help because. Uh, oh, I agree with you there. Yeah, yeah that, that basically all those soccer moms out in northern Virginia and New Jersey and out, out outer exurbs of New York City up in New York State, places like that. I think when you know when when Trump goes off like this, um, that he does come across as a guy who, if nothing else, soccer moms hear that and say, "Wow, he really is a xenophobe. Mm-hmm. He really does think we're living in a prequel to Camp of the Camp of the Saints." Right. And and you know this that he plays to type. And I think with the way because there were some people said, "Oh, Trump should be focusing on the economy." And in every one of his speeches, he checked the box. He, you know, the, our, our old colleague Byron York would jump up and say, "Oh, Trump did talk about the economy." But we've all look, we've all watched Trump for better part of three years now. We've seen him talk about economics and the economy, and we've seen him talk about immigration. Right. And I don't think he's got the same level of enthusiasm and energy and excitement and, and intensity for both those topics. If you did the Roger Ailes test and you watched him on yeah. mute, you would tell which one he cared about and which one he didn't. Exactly. And so I think I don't think that was a huge one. And again, there were some people who said, you know, Trump, we should, you know, the, the economy's doing great. This is Goldilocks. Uh, unemployment's low. GDP's going up. Uh, wages are going up. This is great. Why is he not talking about this? Uh, you know, it is worth noting that before Kavanaugh, the outlook for Republicans was pretty darn gloomy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was after the tax cuts. And sure. the economy, it's not like the economy just got better in the last two months or so. Sure, right? sure, so, sure. Um, so I'm not sure the, the Paul Ryan-esque argument of, no, no, if you just talk about tax rates and economics and job creation, Republicans would do just fine. So oh, yeah. The problem is it's, you know, this whole timeline is screwed up, right? And I mean, and so you can't do the counterfactuals. Yeah. You know, on, on Earth-7B. Mitch Daniels yes. was talking about the great economy, and it was really working for him. Yeah, you know, um, but Trump can't sell that mm-hmm. stuff, and so he can only sell what he likes to sell. And there are only certain people who want to buy it, yeah. right? Now, the probably the best thing you can say for Trump, if you, if you're a big fan of this, if if you know Mickey Kaus is listening or something like that, you can say, look, Trump emphasized this, and it didn't kill him in Florida. Yeah, Republicans won statewide. Both those, you know, high high stakes races there didn't kill him in Ohio, at least with DeWine. Uh, you know, uh, and it's also worth noting Sherrod Brown. The you know everybody knew Sherrod Brown was going to get reelected, and there are a lot of Democrats who think, huh, this is a guy who wins big in Ohio just about every cycle. Uh, blue collar connects with blue collar whites, all that kind of stuff. Maybe this is the kind of guy who should be on the Democratic ticket in twenty twenty. Um, last I checked, he won by six points, mm-hmm. not the big double digit into the teens margin that. Uh, uh, the people were thinking out there. So the Republican Party still has some strength in Ohio. And if the Republicans are going to win Ohio and win Florida there in, in 2020, they're, they're going to be in really good shape for you know, the, the odds of Trump getting another term are pretty good. Um, you know, the fact that they won the governor's race in Iowa is probably encouraging. Uh, the fact that Scott, you know, I, I'm going to take a moment to mourn Scott Walker. I'm kind of heartbroken over this, but, you know, he lost by what, four tenths of a percentage point or something like that? Yeah. Not, you know. This was you could very much you could say Trump's emphasis on illegal immigration and the caravans and all that kind of stuff didn't kill the party in a whole bunch of key states. May have killed him in those suburban districts, but um, that's not necessarily a losing message nationwide. Looking at the electoral college, yeah. Okay, so I mean, since we're on this, because I want to get back to some of the the other stuff in a second. I didn't like the way Donald Trump talked about that stuff. I don't think this idea of losing historically a vital part of the Republican coalition and still surviving is a 
particularly compelling or powerful argument for mm-hmm. me, right, for the long-term health of the party, right? If It seems to me that if you wanted to put on your poli-sci hat and really go spelunking into the data, you could look at this and say that this is going to be seen as a really significant moment in the coming realignment of the two parties in terms of who their coalitions are. And losing the su- losing the suburbs for Republicans is bad when you look at what's left are a bunch of very old people, mm-hmm. very old white people, and rural and blue-collar people. And and the people who lost... I mean, this, is one of my, this has been one of my concerns all along is that I always thought we were going to lose the ha- the Republicans. Were, i got to stop saying we because I no longer really invest much in being a Republican. But um, I always thought we were going to lose the House. And But what concerned me more than losing the House, because I, I don't think anything was going to happen anyway, was that the smaller caucus was going to be vastly more Trumpy. Mm. Because all of the people who knew how to run in diverse districts, yeah. uh, dynamic districts, ur- urban and suburban districts, they were the ones who got would get wiped out, and that's what happened, right? Kaufman, Comstock, Corello, Corello, uh, yeah, and and that's not even counting the ones who retired because they didn't want to go through this, yep. right? And so the the party really is being remade in Trump's image, and the party got off pretty easy this time around. But in terms of a long term prospect for the party, this is not a great idea. On the flip side, the Democrats suck too. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and, yes. and they have enormous problems. And they're basically a regional party now. I mean, they're like a California, New York party almost. Yeah. Um, the, the, you know, the college towns, big cities. That's pretty much the, you know, the, the Democratic alphabet goes from A to B. Yes. Yeah. You know. So, but what happens when Trump is not on the ticket? It's not like Mike Pence cannot sell the birthright citizens nope. stuff, cannot turn out those rural voters I, yeah. in nearly the numbers that Trump can. And if you've shaved off a big chunk of your coalition mm-hmm. and you can't goose up the gains on the part of the coalition that Trump can, you could see how by 2022, Republican Party looks awfully rump party-ish. Yeah. I imagine you get a very similar experience that I do. A lot of people come and say, well, God, Republicans aren't going to nominate him again in 2020, are they? This, you know, okay. um, And, you know, the, the one scenario where I saw, okay, maybe they don't, is if this midterm went disastrous. Mm-hmm. If there were... If this was a 2006, 2008 level Republican bloodbath up and down the ticket, uh, lose the House by, you know, not just by the margin we have, by a wider margin, lose the states, lose the governorships. By the way, as I understand it, as of this morning, Republicans control 31 state legislatures across the country. Democrats only 18. Not a big shift on the state legislative level. Mm -hmm. You know, if it had been a disaster, then you might have had more Republicans saying, okay, we tried this. The Trump approach, 2016 was a fluke. Mm-hmm. He was running against Hillary. This does not work for governing. This does not work for campaigns. And we're going to get demolished in 2020. Ergo, we need Senator X instead of, you know, Trump in 20. And you could you could see that form. With this, it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. The, the Trump, you know, Republicans believe Trump is a winner based on last night. Um, but I'm not sure. I, I think you could make an argument that the truly Trumpified candidate, like Corey Stewart, didn't just lose in uh, uh, Virginia, the Senate race. He, you know, he didn't register. Like, th- there was such a non-entity. Corey Stewart did not cause that many headaches for the Virginia Republicans like Barbara Comstock and mm-hmm. Dave Bratt because nobody was paying attention. Right? Yeah. I mean, he, he was an absolute afterthought. I'm trying to think of other good examples of kind of Trumpified candidates. Kobach. 
Uh, yeah, right, Kobach. I mean, kind of this this mentality of outrageous, in your face, you know, you know, pugnacious. Maybe you could say DeSantis was a example of a Trumpified candidate who managed to win. I got to double check. The, the irony is, I think he's ahead of Rick Scott, mm-hmm. and I'd argue that while Rick Scott endorsed Trump and was very pro-Trump, Rick Scott. Is you talk about you know robotic candidates? Oh yeah, that yeah, should, yeah. You know, be frightening. You know that you know Rick Scott is an administrator. He, he's gonna you know he's give me the data. I'm gonna give you the right answer. No, he's so robotic. I mean, he's he's Mitt Romney without the charm. Like people think you're joking, but that's a really good description. Yeah. Oh, I forgot to. You know, I don't know about you, Jonah. Six years too late. I get to write the headline. Mitt Romney wins. No, it's very exciting. I'm, I, Mitt Romney's going to Washington. I, let's talk about the I think um, Mitt Romney could actually end up being a fantastic senator, right? One, you know, as listeners know, Ben Sass is a friend of this podcast, but one of the things Ben has not done a lot of is craft a lot of legislation, you know, that's, you know, part of the job. And Romney is such a grind, right? He does his homework. He, he gets his binders full of women. Uh, he gets along. No one doesn't get along with Mitt Romney, right? And... You could see him almost with that bizarre sort of Mormon sense of mission, and I say this in a praiseworthy way, of him just sort of going around meeting all 99 of his colleagues, taking notes, writing little notes and all that kind of stuff. And I think, sort of like Lamar Alexander, he never should have been president. Maybe he was he – was Supposedly a good governor, but his skill set is really good for being a mm-hmm. senator. I think Romney could end up being a great senator. coalition builder. Yeah, and you know, Lord knows Republicans need that. Um, Do you think he's going to be all, all that critical of Trump? Um, I was so here's yeah, like here we are. We have been talking. I don't know how many long we've been talking about this. Uh, the, the midterms. We mentioned Mitt Romney now. Yeah. Right. If Barack Obama had run and become senator from Illinois, yeah, that would have been a huge deal. If um, John Kerry had run and become senator, you know. Uh, insert any previous major party nominated presidential candidate running for office and winning a Senate. Like, okay, pop quiz, Jonah. Who is the only other American who has been a senator and a governor of two different states? Who? Sam Houston. Nice. Right? You know, Tennessee and Texas. Uh-huh. Um, first of all, like, what a nice little thing to, you know, to put in your, your you know, life story of Mitt Romney. Well, they're, and the personalities are so similar. <laughs> <laughs> there is a buddy cop movie I would like to watch <laughs> Sam Houston and Mitt Romney teaming up um, no but just a sense of like it's kind of remarkable how little like yes because it wasn't competitive and it wasn't a high draw you know as soon as he got as soon as he announced pretty much people right. knew that he was going to be the next uh, senator but it'll be very interesting to see him in the well of the senate and making his speeches and stuff like that I think he will be I think he'll pick his battles against Trump yeah. um, because I think every Republican in office who wishes to stay in office has kind of, actually, maybe this is a really interesting kind of thought to look forward for 2020. I don't think anybody's really figured out how to fight with Trump yet. I think that's um, probably right. That, that everybody who ends up in that fight gets diminished by it. Uh, you know, Acosta having his, you know, like Acosta may love it, but I don't think he wins these exchange. You know, I don't think people come out of that and say, well, Jim Acosta got the better of Trump in that one. Right? I think everybody who likes Acosta said, boy, he really gave it to the president there. You know, go get him. Go get him, Jim. Uh, and then I think everybody who hates CNN and hates the media says, oh, you know, Trump really gave it to him, you know. See, I, I think that's right. But I think that is a function of the climate of negative polarization that we're in, right? Yeah. So, like, um, if – I wrote a column about this not long ago about how, like, Hillary Clinton, when she picked up Kamala Harris's talking points yeah. about uh, 
Kavanaugh saying something that wasn't true about birth control or whatever. And she had to know because all the fact checkers had already given her four Pinocchios. That struck me as an attempt to bait the right into attacking her, Mm -hmm. right? And, like, there are lots of these examples where people, it's, like, the best thing that could happen for Jim Acosta is for Donald Trump to attack Jim Acosta. Because the people, because everyone is looking for their own sticky little niche of one or two percent of the viewership or the electorate or whatever. And um, so I think that's right. I don't think it's because Donald Trump is a brilliant rhetorician who picks the choice. I mean, like, of course not. But, you know, it's 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 part of it is that people project onto him. People are going to take his side, whatever he does. And so they 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 declare whatever he does brilliant. Yeah. And the idea that little Marco, I mean, I, I mean, you nod like this is obvious, but I can't tell you how many pundits I listen to who talk about low energy Jeb and little Marco as being these unbelievably brilliant sobriquets or whatever. And it's just like no, it's just no. like you want you're rooting for him, so you think what he does is great, right? And but I agree with you that. There isn't anybody who's figured out how to fight with him and win, in part because Trump has this superpower called shamelessness. Yeah. I mean, there's that coupled with the fact that it, it's interesting that when you really get down to it, there are only so many opportunities to take on Trump. Mm-hmm. And you could argue that, you know, who took on Trump in the Republican primary? Um, what's that old joke that, you know, in certain languages, they don't have numbers, so they go one, two, many? Right. right? You know, <laughs> the Republican primary was one, two, many. You know, yeah. That that. You know, it wasn't Trump versus Cruz. It wasn't Trump versus Rubio. It was Trump versus the crowd. And lo and behold, people preferred the, the standout, right? Yeah. Trump versus Hillary. Don't need to say anything more there. I don't think, you know, like, do you think Michael Avenetti helped, uh, or Avenatti, pardon me, I keep pronouncing, mispronouncing. Uh, I Avenatti. Think pro- helped- I think it's pronounced jackass. Uh, there you go. Exactly. The emphasis is on the ass. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Um, the it- Avenatti is silent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, did he help Democrats this cycle? No. no. You know, pretty much you could argue probably. You could argue he helped himself. Republicans uh, most valuable. Well, I mean, that's the thing. Do you want to get a nomination and be the president of liberal America or do you want to win the presidency in 2020? For a long time, you know, this is this happened in 2016. And, you know, I don't like candidates, Jonah, who are running to be president of conservative America and or on bigger book tours. Yeah. Or guys who are running for a gig on Fox News or stuff. Now, there's nothing wrong with Fox News people, you know, for, you know. We'll, yeah. we'll talk off it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, but the gist being that if you're going to run, I want you to run and try to win one, at least 270 electoral votes. I want you to aim for 300. I want you to right. aim for 350, you know. Uh, but the second thing is, you know, and so I don't know if there's any dem- – there's interesting kind of theory floating around out there that – that trying to do an Avenatti style, you know, you think you're angry, Trump, we're angry, you know, that's not going to work. And that somebody put, I think, I can't remember who, who described it, you know, Democrats need to offer a big, giant scoop of, of Midwestern nice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, because I, I do kind of think, I remember thinking about this when it was McCain versus Obama. If we had tried to run out and find the, the Republican Obama, look, he's young too. He's, you know. It's kind of Rubio. Right? Yeah. And it was a little too early in the, the cycle for that. Um, I don't, if you, if you got a contrast, lean into the contrast. Don't, you know, try to bring your own, not, because given a choice between Trump or cheap knockoff of Trump, I think the electorate will pick, will, will choose Trump. No, I think that's probably right. Because I mean, look, I'm obviously a, a Trump critic, but he exudes a certain authenticity. 
Uh, <laughs> he, is, he is exactly who you think. I don't know if you watch football, Dennis Green, the famous post-game comment. They are who we thought they were. <laughs> they are who we thought they were. We let him off the hook. You know, uh, Trump is who exactly who you think he is. Yeah. Which is why I kind of think like a Biden type, if Biden were younger, could yeah. could do it. Because yeah. I can't stand Biden, but he comes across as who he is, you yeah. know. Um which is sometimes nobody would fake being that. No, exactly. I mean, I mean, if you track some of his sentences, it sounds you would it would be best be act, acted out by an Alzheimer patient walking off into the snow. <laughs> Thank, um, thanks to you, Jonah. I, whenever I see Joe Biden, I think get these squirrels off of me. <laughs> um, all right, let's go back to somebody who, who once ran for president of conservative America, Ted Cruz. Mm-hmm. I have a theory about. Why that race turned out the way it worked. Okay. Um, I talked to, and I'm, I'm I'm friendly with Ted Cruz. I think Ted Cruz gets something of a bad rap when you meet him in person. He's a little more. Oh yeah. I would much rather have a beer with Ted Cruz than um, who's that human toothache? Uh, John Kasich. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, there's this idea out there that John Kasich is a hugger and a really sweet man. Jonah, my dad was a mailman. <laughs> um, and uh, did I tell a story on the podcast? I can't remember, but um. I was in the green room at CBS uh, a couple months ago, and Corey Gardner mm-hmm. was on um, uh, giving an interview. And Corey Gardner apparently always loves to do these interviews from his home district, from a, from the state, from his hometown, with all of these like John Deere tractors in the background because his family owns a famous dealership there, and that's his mm-hmm. thing. And I had I had this idea of doing a whole column about how. Kasich should do that with like his old mailman grandfather. <laughs> Like sort of on a shuffling. outdoor chain, like a you know an extendo chain, <laughs> shuffling back and forth. Um, where was I? Uh, Kasich, Kasich, yeah. Cruz. Okay, so yeah, that's right. Uh, but no, it, it wouldn't be smart if Kasich did that. So you know, it wouldn't be smart. There are job sites that send you tons of the wrong resumes to sort through. That's not smart. There are job sites that make you wait for the right candidates to apply to your job. Not smart. You know what else is not smart? Using your relatives to fill in at work while you look for staff. But you know what is smart? Going to ZipRecruiter.com slash dingo to hire the right person. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Its powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes, identifies people with the right skills, education, and experience for your job, and actively invites them to apply. So you get quali- qualified candidates fast. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. This rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over 1,000 reviews. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address. ZipRecruiter.com slash dingo. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Dingo. ZipRecruiter.com slash Dingo. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So, uh, we were talking about Ted Cruz. Um, I, I hate to interrupt, but you're... Jeff Sessions is gone. Oh, my gosh. So, this breaking news, uh, Jim Garrity has just handed me his phone, and the amount of obscure Canadian porn on here is really <laughs> disturbing. Uh, but there's also a tweet They're from... polite there, eh? <laughs> um... Would you mind doing that again, please? Eh? Okay, sorry. Uh, uh, 
uh, Donald Trump, we are pleased to announce that Matthew G. Whitaker, Chief of Staff to Attorney General Jeff Sessions at the Department of Justice, will become our new Acting Attorney General of the United States. He will serve our country well. We thank Attorney General Jeff Sessions for his service and wish him well. A permanent replacement will be nominated at a later date. So we'll get to Ted in a second. What do you make of that? Election? Instant analysis. Yeah, yeah. Literally, this came across like moments ago, and you can hear my thoughts as they formulate. Wish he hadn't done that. Uh, I know there's a lot of like, you know, Jeff Sessions is the cause for all the problems. But no, no. Um, it'll be interesting to see who he nominates. Elections have consequences. With 54 uh, Republican senators, you have a little more leeway. But mm-hmm. I don't think this is, you know, Senate Republicans and Mitch McConnell going to be a rubber stamp for. Any old schmo who uh, Attorney General Pirro? I, I was about to say, you know, I was, I was trying to come up with the comic example, and uh, you know, I think whoever the replacement is is going to have to be somebody who uh, has trust. I'm not necessarily going to say trust on both sides of the aisle. I think it's safe to say, Senate, you know, whatever. If there are 46 remaining Senate Democrats, there are going to be 46 no votes against uh, whoever the nominee is. Right now, the interesting question is: Does this lead to him firing Mueller? Does this lead to him firing Rosenstein? Does you know, is this Gildenstern? Uh, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Um, if it goes down that road, things get very complicated and very messy pretty fast. I, I look, I think there are a lot of Republicans in this country who did not either didn't vote for Trump in the primary or voted for him with holding their nose and all that kind of stuff. If you can just keep the drama down, the economy's going well, stock markets been up and down a bunch, but you know, overall better than it was, you know, in the last two years, just, just stop, stop fussing around with it. Stop, just, just leave it, you know. And this is not leaving it, and this is, you know, continued Trump soap opera, because now he's going to have, you know, his multi-night episodes of The Apprentice. Who's mm-hmm. he going to pick, you know, for the attorney general? And, uh, yeah. So, yeah. So, I, 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 go on, uh, I go on vacation Thursday. Uh, I'm sorry, as I'm stomping and stamping, you know. <laughs> I was doing fine until they, you know, news broke, Jonah. Jim has a problem with, like, wanting to make sounds on the table with his bottle. He's using it like a drumstick or something. Um, you guys are burying the lead here. This is... Uh, Sessions is going to run against Doug Jones in 2020, definitely. You think so? <laughs> Wouldn't that be funny? And therefore, if it's going to be funny, then it would definitely happen. That's the new rule. No, that's true. Yeah. It's whatever, whatever the writers um, who are like the gamesters of Treskillian in to this quote timeline. The, uh, the wise philosopher Rust Cole, time is a flat circle. That's right. You know. um, uh, yeah, so I – the problem is if he runs against Doug Jones, that – presumes that um, Trump doesn't utterly demonize him in the next yeah. two years, and I'm not sure that yeah. that will happen. Um, but uh, um, I think this is bad news for the Trump administration. I think, uh, I mean, I, I'm thinking through this at the same time you are. Um, I think the demonization of Jeff Sessions, I, th- let me put it this way. Um, one of the surest signs, to by my life, it's a heuristic I use, if you do the totally over-the-top, Jeff Sessions is a traitor, Jeff Sessions is a hack talking points, it means you're a hack. It means that you are a Trump loyalist who does not care about facts, right? If you say that Jeff Sessions isn't a conservative, ah. right, which you, you'll hear, yeah. um, that means that you have all of the integrity integrity and and intellectual seriousness of a Jerry Falwell Jr., and um, which is to say none. And um, But the interesting thing to me is I don't know – we don't know – I mean, I know Jeff Sessions recused himself, mm-hmm. but we don't know what he knows, right? And so it is entirely possible that he may feel compelled to say something if Trump 
goes a bad way with all of this mm-hmm. stuff. So I don't know. It's interesting. It is going to make the midterms seem like a million years ago by Friday, <laughs> um, which is one of the things about this timeline that can be really disorienting. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, keep noodle, put it in one of your all back right. processors and we'll come back to all it. Right. Uh, so Ted Cruz, here's my theory. Mm-hmm. You hear all this stuff about what this means about building the party in Texas. I love, love the Reuters headline last night that says... <laughs> Win or lose, Beto will emerge victorious. Um, The perfect summary of how the media has covered that race. That's right. And um, uh, I have this theory that that Ted Cruz struggled to um, put that race away because an enormous number of Republicans in Texas don't like Ted Cruz for whatever reason. And I think there are legitimately a bunch of reasons. Mm -hmm. But like... I was out in Texas a couple of weeks ago, and I talked to a bunch of Politico plugged-in types. I talked to a friend of mine from Texas about two days ago who's a big Texan donor guy. And they all said, you know, the problem is that Ted has just pissed off so many people in the state that no one wants to rally around him. And and people are tired of his personality, which is what Scott Walker's problem was. And uh, so you had a lively, interesting, new personality in Beto O'Rourke, mm-hmm. and you had a tired, played-out grading personality in Ted Cruz and those things made it closer than it should have but it wasn't and he had and one of the things Ted had to do was nationalize the race right he had to make it about keeping Texas red and all that kind of stuff because he couldn't make it about himself Ted I mean look again I think Ted Cruz is a really smart guy and he gets sometimes a bad rap I think I think that I don't want to get too pejorative with Ted but um he uh he came on the scene as the guy who said, you can't be a team player when it comes to first principles. And that is a hard rhetorical position to box yourself into and then behave the way Ted has behaved. So he couldn't make it about himself, right? Um, And other than that, it's just the Wendy Davis replay, right? Yeah, yeah. So um, I got to write a lot about this race for National Review. And it's one of those things, the things that happen to you early in life, you don't realize... Jonah, my first real job and, you know, my in, first real thing I was doing in journalism was a, interning at the Washington Bureau of the Dallas Morning News back in 1996. I'm kind of giving a sense of my age here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was when Victor Morales was running up against Phil Graham. Phil Graham had just run for president, didn't go so well. He had to run for reelection. Victor Morales was this high school teacher who drove around the state in his white pickup truck through some miracle managed to pick, managed to win the Democratic primary over two much better known, much better funded Democratic congressmen. And the national media went bonkers. And I remember being in the Dallas Morning News when, you know, the, the day of the primary and afterwards, and this was this revolution in Texas politics. I believe also the first Latino candidate uh, to win a statewide nomination. Mm. Uh, so it was a big deal. And I went back and I looked and all the big media that is going bonkers about Beto O'Rourke now pretty much went bonkers per Victor Morales. And it was kind of this nice little underdog. But no one should have had any illusions that Victor Morales was going to beat Phil Graham. And Phil Graham won by, I think it was like 9, 10, 11 points, something like that. And you fast forward, you know, that was also the last, 94 was the last time Democrats won anything statewide uh, in that state. And it's just been like that the whole time. And early on in this race, talking to Texas Republicans, they were like, look, Ted Cruz can't take this for granted. Actually, there's one scenario in which Beto O'Rourke would win, as if Ted Cruz and the Texas Republican Party took it for granted, said, ah, we got this, we're a red state. Uh, then you might have you creep past him in a strange way. All the hype around Beto O'Rourke kind of hurt him um, mm-hmm. because it made Ted, you know, Ted Cruz probably wasn't ever going to take this for granted. Um, That's not who he is. Okay. Will you permit me for a moment, Jonah? Yes. 
Jonah, oh dear. I have been listening <laughs> to you and to Jim criticize me. And I just want to make two clear points. The first is I, <laughs> you're, you're scaring Jack. <laughs> I believe in two things, Jonah. The first is the Constitution, and the second is Jesus Christ. <laughs> and I'll tell you why, Jonah, because Jesus Christ wrote the Constitution. <laughs> Uh, Not bad. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, you listen to it. And by the way, I really like Ted Cruz. And, and I, I you know, like, again, you know, so this, the impression is not meant to be, you know. Um, and, you know, look, you talk about time displacement. I, I got into an argument with some guy on Twitter. who was generally pretty good natured. Basically. On Twitter? That yeah. happens? Uh, but the guy was like, look, you know, better or how can you say better or work hasn't done much in Congress? What has Ted Cruz done in Congress? And I'm sitting there thinking, like, did 2013 get erased from everybody's memory? Yeah. Remember the government shutdown, right? That he, you know, he led the party into what I struck me. You know, like, that did not work out yeah. for the Republican Party the, the way it wanted to. You can argue about how much damage it did. Like, a month or two later, they unveiled healthcare.gov and nothing worked, you know. Um, but the government, you know, Ted Cruz, like, Ted Cruz made a lot of enemies back yep. then, you know. Ran for president. I think everybody knew from the moment he got into the Senate that this was a guy who wanted to run for president. I think everybody at his daycare center 48 <laughs> years ago knew that. Is Jonah down, uh, sorry, is, uh, is Ramesh down the hall? We can ask him. <laughs> um, so, you know, there were a lot of people who, who, you know, he'd rubbed the wrong way over the last six years. Um, but in the end, it's Texas. It's a Republican state. And the, 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 when people, you know, our, our old colleague Tim Alberta had written a very interesting piece in Politico about a couple of days before the election who said, gee, you know, if, if Beto had run as a centrist, could he have gotten over the top? And it's an interesting theory. But if he had done that, you wouldn't have had 60 to $70 million of donations right. from Democrats nationwide. Because what made them excited was a de- you know, t- statewide candidate in Texas who was uh, open to uh, getting rid of ICE, right. wanted to ban AR-15s, wanted to impeach Trump, right? It was the running on the Bernie Sanders-esque or, or at least hard lefty agenda in Texas that got everybody so excited. Right. They got excited because he was a Ben and Jerry's flavor. Yes. Right. You know, yeah. And that's, you know, so I, I, I'm- Beto I'm, butter crunch. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, he is, you know, give Beto O'Rourke credit. He got much closer than, you know, 3%. You know, that's nothing to sneeze at. Sure, sure, sure. The demographics of the state. I actually think I know he's. <laughs> I was doing uh, my friend Cam Edwards' show yesterday, and I'm like, well, Jim, he, he said he's not running in 2020, so there's no way he could do that, right? <laughs> I, I think he's going to run, and I think he's. I, first of all, I think Democrats could do worse, and I think uh, I, it is strange. I think he'd be a fool not to run uh-huh. because there's going to be about a bazillion Democratic candidates, and Beto O'Rourke can say, hey, first of all, first of all, he's got this national fundraising network. Yeah, um, he's not giving away the money. He has, he's not giving away the money, and he can say, look, if I can come within three points in Texas, I can put a lot of purple and red states into play. I don't know if that's actually accurate, but... Oh, that, does, that doesn't matter. Yeah. 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 So... He's good on the stump and charismatic, yada, yada, yada. Um, all right. I want to go a little more 30,000 foot, because again, by the time this comes out, people who are really interested in midterm stuff have heard a lot of midterm yeah. stuff. So, um, But first, I want to talk about um, our friends at uh, Donors Trust. Now's a good time to talk about Donors Trust because the end of the year is when many people start thinking more about their charitable giving. Donors Trust is the Community Foundation for Liberty. What does that mean? Well, you probably have a community foundation near you that focuses on nonprofits supporting the local area. Donors Trust does the same thing, but its mission isn't bound by geography, but instead by principles. Donors Trust advances the values you and I care about across the country 
limited government, personal responsibility, and free enterprise. A donor-advised fund with Donors Trust offers you favorable tax credits, additional privacy, and a simpler way to manage your charitable giving. Look, Donors Trust plays a critical role helping donors, big and small, support groups fighting for the values we discuss almost each week on this show. Working with them will protect your giving from going to places that undermine those principles, and it's just a smarter way to give. They have a unique offer this week. Go to DonorsTrust.org slash Dingo to receive a Donors Trust swag bag with all sorts of neat stuff in it. I have one right here. It even rattles because it's got all sorts of weird little tchotchkes in it. It also contains information to help you see if a donor-advised fund with Donors Trust would benefit you. The first 50 people who sign up at DonorsTrust.org slash Dingo will receive one of these swag bags. Go. Do it now. Do it now. That's DonorsTrust.org slash Dingo. And it is actually pretty cool little uh, swag bag. And um, um, I won't tell you everything that's in it, but among the things, it's got a nice pen. It's got a, I think these are mints or jelly beans or something like that. And this is uh, M&M's with uh, the crown from the Statue of Liberty on it and some magnets and stickers and I don't know, and, and maybe $100 in gold cougarans. It's pretty cool. Anyway, um, that last part was embellishment. Um, all right, so... <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, while you were doing the ad, Jonah. I checked my phone. No one has resigned or been fired yet. Um, but you know, since the, yeah, since the after, sessions. yeah, since sessions. Okay, yes. okay. Feel free to volunteer any punditry stuff that you think we should have gotten to that we hadn't yet. But I want to broaden out for just a second. Um, so I wrote. I had this column out this week, making this argument that I've touched on here. I think before. Uh, you remember the book, The Party Decides. Mm-hmm. Right, so. The argument was, was that um, even though the formal parties are kind of weak, there's this informal network of institutions, donors, uh, interest groups that basically still perform the party functions, right? So on the right, it's National Review and the Weekly, Weekly Standard, think tanks like Cato and Heritage and AEI and donors and networks, Cokes, all the rest, who are the ones who select the nominee and on the left it's a different set of coalitions you know but it's the same principle and there were a lot of political scientists who thought that kind of blew up with trump i don't really care about that argument i mean i think it did but i think it had more to do with the fact that it was a collective action problem with 16 Mm -hmm. people and blah 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 but as i watched the punditry last night on all three cable news networks including one where i'm a contributor uh or if you look at the controversy where Hannity appeared at the rally with Trump, right? The thesis of my column is, is that we have so, you know, the weirdest irony of our times is that this is the most partisan moment maybe since the 1850s. But the parties have never been weaker, mm. right? I mean, it's like yeah. like during the religious wars in Europe, I mean, the Catholic Church was vibrant and strong and the Protestant churches were vibrant and strong. It's really weird to have Republicans going hammer and tongs against Democrats and yet both parties be so unbelievably weak that the largest affiliation in this country is actually independent. Mm -hmm. And so part of my argument is is that we have so gelded the parties um, that these party functions have almost completely been outsourced, leaving the parties themselves to be little more than a collection of fax machines. Mm -hmm. And that's why the New York Times can tell its readers to lobby Congress against the tax bill, right? That's why 
every late night comedy show is essentially mm-hmm. a messaging or see Saturday Night Live. I mean, I heard yep. Tom Bevan on Fox the other day say, you know, the Saturday Night Live skit, the one with the the Dan Crenshaw. Yeah, you know, this is. This is going to really. This is really a bad idea because it's stepping on the Democratic Democratic Party's own messaging, right? And he corrected himself as I'm not saying they're part but they kind of are. The, Demo- the SNL yeah. is. They oh, eight- I, I think more than ever. Right? Yeah, yeah. You know, SNL for eight years said it was impossible to make fun of Barack Obama, um, and it's, it wasn't because there was nothing funny to say. It's that that it wasn't part of their alignment in this sort of mm-hmm. invisible party structure that we've got. And so one of the things. That I've been sort of fascinating. I've been trying to figure out this period in 2015, 2016 where everybody went crazy, right? Mm-hmm. And and the way I've been thinking about it is there are all sorts of us who've worn lots of different hats, right? I've always been kind of a party guy. I mm-hmm. defended the Republicans. I criticized Democrats. I thought National Review was too pro, including me. It was too too in the tank for Bush in the 2000s. But in part of that was rallying around a war president, yeah. you know, and I think there were good reasons for it. But in retrospect, I think we can see some of it. And and what happened in 2016 or 2015, really, was I was watching a lot of people who had essentially the same job description that you and I do, right? I mean, we're, we're pundits. Mm-hmm. We're, uh, we write books. We do TV stuff. We give speeches. We do podcasts. We, you know, I, I do conservative intellectual history stuff. But, you know, we mm-hmm. basically – and there are lots of us who have more or less the same job styles. But we all these different hats. And then when push came to shove, there were some people who um, the one hat they wouldn't take off is party guy. And there are other people, the one hat they wouldn't take off is, you know, reporter guy. And I didn't appreciate any of this. And it helps me actually – it helps me be less angry at some of my old friends for when I now that I realize that that was sort of the dynamic, there was a great exchange between Mike Gallagher and Guy Benson about a year ago, mm-hmm. where Gallagher says, and I like Mike Gallagher a lot, and I like Guy a lot. And Gallagher says to Guy, you know, Guy was giving some analysis that was bad for Trump, and he says, "Well, you know, you're biased, and our listeners should know that, or you have a conflict here." And Guy says, "What are you talking about?" He says, "Well, you were a never Trumper," and and Guy says, "Well, you know." My job is to say things as I, uh. I call them as I see them and is, read them. Because, you know, because of your 2016 position, clearly you must be lying now? Is that something? The yeah, there was yeah. some, some weird logical hiccup right. in it, right? And so Guy says, no, no, no. You know, look, my job is to interpret the facts as I see them and give my best opinion that I can and tell the truth. And Mike, to his credit, it openly says um, – we can put a link to the transcript in the show notes um, – no, 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 no. That's not your job. Your job is to faithfully express the worldview and views of your readers. <laughs> and But you can see why a talk yeah. radio guy would yeah. think in those terms, right? And look, I love Hugh Hewitt. Hugh Hewitt's a friend of mine. Hugh Hewitt, you know, he, he said to me on air, you know, when we had a fight about Trump back in the old days, I said, you know, look, at the end of the day, I'm never going to endorse him. And, and you will because you're a party guy. And he says, that's right. I'm a party yes. guy. Right. And, 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 and Hugh's open about it. I'm not, this is not a criticism. doesn't mean Hugh isn't an intellectual. doesn't mean he isn't an opinion journalist yeah. or any of those other things. But at the end of the day, there were some people who were just vastly more aware of or comfortable with their role as sort of ex officio members of this invisible party that is the real party. What do you think of all that? That's a really, you know, there's a lot to digest there. Um, the first, I'm not asking about you where you yeah. fit in all. No, no, that's, um, 
I, first of all, I think your argument that the traditional party structures have been replaced. Here's the thing. Maybe it should hard to say that the partisan media on each side are now the proper analogs to past Democratic primaries. And I'll just kind of give you know, – we don't have to think about the past. We can look at the future. Democrats are going to have what looks like to be a Thunderdome, you know, 20-car pileup uh, Democratic presidential campaign. If Rachel Maddow suddenly decides that one – Kirsten Gillibrand is the best possible choice right. for – you know, and everybody you – know, the, the, the gang at MSNBC says Kirsten Gillibrand is the best choice. By the way, I don't think that's the case. I'm just picking this name sure, out sure. of the hat. If the Pod Save America guys, right. you know, um, they're the smoke filled room, right? If the uh, if the cast of SNL, mm-hmm. if Kimmel, you know, um, you put together all of that group and you say, if if all of them say Kirsten Gillibrand is the best possible choice, then I think Kirsten Gillibrand has a really good chance right. of winning the nomination. Just That's because, what they did with Obama, right? It's what they did with Obama. The party, yeah, party such as I'm making air quotes in the air, but yeah. the formal party right. was all behind Hillary. Yeah. Um, and maybe if you want to kind of think, you know, alternate histories and stuff like that. Look, I'm going to give you like five names, and then you could probably add another five or so. But let's say early 2015, Roger Ailes, Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, Ann Coulter. Um, I don't think who else was on the Trump train. But let's take just those four. Laura Ingram. Laura Ingram. All right, there you go. Five, five, you know, very prominent voices, all prominent conservatives, all folks who saw themselves as the voice of conservatism in America. And Rush has been really great to me. I don't mean to, you know. Sure, sure. Um, but if they'd all said, Donald Trump, are you kidding me? This guy was once pro-choice. He was on pro-gun control. Donated to Democrats. This guy knows nothing of us and our ideas and our agenda and our philosophy. Be gone with ye, as if any of them ever used the words, you know, mm-hmm. you know, like they were in a Bud Light commercial. Would Trump have gotten the nomination? I don't. I think if nothing, if nothing else, his odds would have been much less likely mm-hmm. than, that he would have had, you know. That all five of all four of them, all five of them looked at that and said, "No, no, we can we can win with this guy. This guy's just just fine." Now you and I had some pretty strong disagreements with that, but that is the equivalent of the party structure. In part, because that is the effectively, whether they like it or not, that is the party's communication structure now. Right, right. When people are complaining, I, I thought that the controversy over Sean Hannity appearing at a Trump rally was kind of silly and weird because, in some ways, it's the most honest thing Sean Hannity has ever said and done. Like, like, yeah, like yeah. You know, he he's a Trump guy. He right. uh, you know. Um, they shared Michael Cohen right. as lawyers, uh, you know, like, so I, I don't, you know, my, you know Bill the, Shine is Sean's guy in the White House right? and yeah, Sean you know. is Donald Trump's guy at Fox. Exactly. I mean, and, and, you know, that's, I, I don't think that's hidden to anybody. I don't think, you know, if you want to say it's a blurring of the lines between journalism and lawmaking, eh, I guess, but, you know, like, there have always been these, you know, Bill Clinton and, uh, Bloodworth Thompson and and sure. you know, there's always been this blurry line between people in media and people who, you know, reporters who have the pre- Joe Klein, right? I mean, all kinds of examples like that sort of thing. So, um, but yeah, I to push back on that slightly. I mean, I agree with you, but the 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 role. If you go back and you read National Review, Bill Buckley and Nixon, mm-hmm. certainly Eisenhower. And even Reagan, there were tensions, and you were allowed to express them because yeah. this idea was is that there was this distance between the two things. I remember, and and I I would quibble with the the history because I don't think Rush and all those guys decided that Trump was their guy. I think what happened was there was a certain aspect of the people have decided, and I must go with them for I am their leader. Aspect to it. Um, it's certainly on talk radio, yeah. you know, and I'm not singling out. 
Rush or anybody, no, but it, it's yeah, well, you, you were getting it from your readers. I was getting it from my readers. It's tough to say, I think X, and your readership are like, no, I think Y. Yeah. And you are betraying me by telling me it is why. Yeah. No, and, 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 and you know, that's. And particularly in something like talk radio, where it's a much more intimate relationship with your yeah. audience, and it's a much more bound relationship economically with your audience, yeah. right? Well, um, but uh, the the thing is, is that back when the parties were more robust, mm-hmm. it was understood that the stuff that happens within the parties is is the naked partisan politics stuff. And then everyone else had a little bit of critical distance. So yeah, because the New York Times was friendlier to Democrats in the 1960s than today, but it was much less of an adjunct to the Democratic Party than it is today. Mm-hmm. And I think that one of the problems that you get is that when you you take all of there's a like it's Mitch McConnell this great line I quoted when he was giving his floor speech about the McCain-Feingold thing. He says, "Look, going back to the Watergate era reforms, we haven't taken money out of politics. We've just taken the parties out of politics. The NRA, and you know the NRA vastly better than I do, but I don't think you would disagree with me. That it's not the NRA's power isn't that it gives an enormous amount of money. Nope." nope. It's, their power is they're really good yeah. at messaging and organizing their voters to express their will on a single issue. NRA is so much better than the Republican or Democratic Party at what it does. Um, gun rights had a pretty decent midterm election. And I believe – I want to say they donated like ten, nine million this, this cycle. Mm-hmm. That's not a lot. And, and actually, actually, in terms of donations, I think it was even less. I think it was mostly the – you know. You create your your independent super PAC, your I believe it's NRA Victory Fund. You know, and you run ads the way you want, but they they were much less active than they usually were. Now, yeah. some of that is Rick Scott signed a gun bill, a gun control bill that they didn't like. Some of their folks, you know, weren't up this cycle. Is a you know some theory that they're saving up for twenty twenty. Yeah. Um. You know, there's there's a couple of different you know factors for that, but yeah. No, the the biggest thing it does is you know the mailers and the endorsements and, and candidates can say I'm ra- party stuff, right? Exactly. That's what yeah. a party there you go. does yeah. normally, right? Yeah. You know? Exactly. And same thing with Planned Parenthood. Yep. Yeah. You know? And uh, Coke Network, right? All Coke their, Network you know, uh, or Soros, Libre or Steyer. Yeah. 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 All the all the stuff, all the nut black blocking and tackling, nuts and bolts of yeah. And so my point is, is that I think think about it this way: there's a there's a constant amount of politics that happens in society, and traditionally we take that bundle of political energy and we harness it through parties. When the parties can no longer contain you know, the um, the power, the energy of the iron fist or whatever, yeah. it spills out into other things and then it corrupts those things. So every Oscar ceremony is now a friggin' get out the vote speech crapathon, right? And and Jerry Falwell Jr. is out there, you know, uh, sounding like a social gospel ward healer. And you can go down a long list because it's it because that amount of politics is gonna stay constant, and if you don't contain it within the parties other institutions pick it up and they have to leave their lanes. So like when we did the against Trump issue, which was not a never Trump issue. You have many people have you had to tell that to, right? It was a endorsement issue for the field before the first caucuses. The number of people, including at Fox News, who would say things like, who is National Review? That's not your job. To tell yeah. people how to vote. And it's like, no, like, literally, that's our job. (laughs) It's like, it's one of the things we do and have done for 55 years. And they just couldn't. But there was this weird thing about not getting crosswise with the people. And I think, and that one of the reasons why our politics are so fouled up now is because no one trusts any institution, including the parties. 
everyone is investing directly in personality brands, Oprah, Kanye, Trump, or whatever. And that's why you can Trumpify the party so easily because it's all cult of personality stuff. I almost wonder, though, I want to play devil's advocate that this maybe this is actually better. Because let's say every, you know, January, the good folks at uh, the Coke Network are kind enough to invite me out to their winter meeting. I get out of the miserable weather and get to go to Palm Springs and um, under fantastic – it's a you know, wonderful facility. They, you know, do it out there. Uh, it's not a sweeping argument from principle so far, but no, go on. <laughs> uh, under tight security that follows you to the bathroom and make sure you're urinating where you're supposed to. Um, I get to talk to those, you know, the, the, the Coke Network seminar donors and they are – um, a viewpoint you – know, they're, they're generally libertarian. Like people, oh, they're big Republican donors. Republican, yeah. I mean Scott yeah. Walker types. Um, they're libertarian communitarians, mm-hmm. which is to say that they believe in building social capital, which is not something you hear from traditional Repu- – you know, the, sure. the Republican Party as a whole. Um, they're libertarians, but I don't think I've ever heard much about Second Amendment and gun rights there. No, I haven't. Uh, I don't hear anything about social issues, gay marriage, marijuana, and that kind of stuff. You know, like they're, they're libertarians in terms of low taxes, low regulation – uh, free the power of the individual. You know, and I always go out there and I, I, one, yeah, I'll be open. I agree with a huge chunk of that. Uh, thing. And you hear stuff about like criminal justice reform. Mm-hmm. Prison reform was their big push this year. Now that's a viewpoint that isn't really expressed in either party clearly and succinctly and as focused as it is there. And so I don't know if you'll ever see a day where people say, oh, well, I'm, I'm a cokeite, you know, or, or so, you know, I'm a the the, uh, the philosophy issue base and interests and all that kind of stuff. It's different than you would get at the Reason Magazine jamboree, even though they're both sure. technically under the libertarian label, right? So one of the things when people always say, you know, oh, why isn't you know the why doesn't America have more than two major parties? It's because somebody like Ross Perot comes along. Come, uh, comes, I can't talk with Jonah. Uh, somebody like Ross Perot comes along, and one you know one or both of the two major parties attempt to kind of glom onto those voters and to say, okay. Oh, you like deficit focus and, you know, sure. we'll, we'll do that. Oh, you're worried about trade? We'll do that, you know. And eventually the Perot voters filter back into two major parties because the two major parties have aimed to win them over, right? So each one of our – each one of the two major parties that we have has like a – you know, lots of little sub-parties within it and factions and all that kind of stuff. So what we're seeing here in this independent – you know, if you want to say the Tom Steyer's mm-hmm. impeachment before all as an independent group, the Koch group um, – NRA, any one of these interest groups, single issue groups, or even kind of just general approach towards politics groups, they're kind of like they're taking these factions within the party and now they're operating outside of the structure of the party. It's not quite a true multi-party system, but it's maybe a factional system that ends up, you know, and it's the same, it's the same, whether we like it or not, it's the same contest of persuade people to your point of view. Yeah, look, look. As someone whose first job out of college was at the American Enterprise Institute and has worked at only nominally profitable institutions for my entire adult life, I have no problem with these idea network things. I mean, I I wish they were more powerful, not less powerful. But my point is that, you know, so wouldn't it be better, though, if the actual political parties had the power to control their message a little bit? I'm not talking about... Yeah. silencing people outside the party, right? I'm not up for any of the campaign finance reform garbage. Yeah. I am saying, though, that why not be able to just g- give your money to the Republicans rather than to these PACs yeah. and all the rest? And why can't... Because, uh, look, things are going to get worse, right? I mean, I, I, I've, we've talked about this before, but, like, in 2015, I kept telling my Democratic friends, you don't understand, the President Donald Trump is much worse for you because... Our celebrities kind of peter out at Scott Baio and Ted Nugent. 
you've got Oprah, you've got all these people, and if cult of personality stuff and celebrity can win, overpower everything else, and the parties are essentially powerless to stop that, then that is a brave new world we're heading into, and it's going to be a bigger problem for you guys because you got all the celebrities. Why can't the... I mean, first of all, they used to smoke-filled rooms. There was a, first of all, I like smoke-filled rooms. I'm in a lot of smoke-filled rooms. But I, I think it's... I think the parties need to be more powerful. I, I disagree with you about the two-party system. I think the, f- the fundamental reason is we have that winner-take-all, first-past-the-post, whatever you call it, system. If we had proportional representation, we'd have more parties. But as Hofstetter says, the role of third parties in American politics is like that of bees. They have their effect by stinging, and then they die. Mm. Right? The third party that comes along always punishes the party it's most similar to. Right? So in 1912... Bull Moose Party screws the Republicans, and then we get the worst president of the 20th century. Ross Perot basically hurt the Republicans. Greens, Al Gore. Greens, Green, Al Gore. Uh, okay, right? interesting. Right. Yeah, so, and so this brings me to the second point. Right. Because I am so unbelievably disillusioned, and I start day drinking really early these days, and I'm a misanthrope, <laughs> and all of these other things, right? And I'm kind of politically homeless. It's very hard for me to get really angry about progressive nonsense these days. I mean, and normally it used to be I could just be easily triggered by a lot of it, but because I think there are just so many dumb arguments everywhere that's hard for me to sort of have that tribal, oh, they're being stupid because I think so many people on our side are being stupid too. But this, the Democrats won the popular congressional <laughs> vote thing makes me want to take a ballpoint pen and just put it through my left eye. I think it is so unbelievably incandescently stupid and it feeds into this thing that I've been talking about for a while. American people are acting like they want to live in a parliamentary system. They want to vote for parties. They want to vote for party platforms. They don't want to vote for office holders. They want to vote, for, they want to vote in a party, and then the party will decide who fills all the positions. And they don't want to admit that the Constitution won't let them. You know, um, This is going to get worse, don't you think? Well, okay. The, the, yeah, there's a lot to unpack here. The first is... Um, we you know we live in stupid times and, and you know, like oh you know people, like the the role of celebrities getting involved in politics there are very bright celebrities out there who can sometimes weigh in um I, i've done a lot of taylor swift jokes but i don't think she really you know went that far you know she she had a viewpoint she liked bredesen yeah. she put it out there and oh by the way it did jack squat in that race so maybe we on the right should complain less about oh those hollywood liberals are you know yeah we don't whine when nascar guys come up on right, stage yeah. right but the other side like you know i mean if, if taylor couldn't deliver tennessee i don't think there's that many you right know. um but, but the kind of the second thing that kind of you know grows out of that is that the the subtext of ninety some percent of political arguments is that I should get what I want, mm-hmm. right? I want a democratic Senate. Ergo, all votes should be summed up. It should be added up, and then we get you know. Whenever they say that, and you know, half your listeners probably know this already, Jonah. But in California, they have that you know two past the post in the primary right. system. So you know, you know how many Repu- votes the Republicans got in the Senate uh, race in California this year? Zero, because it was Democrat against Democrat. Right, and that's in the neighborhood of like six to seven million votes. Right, right. So, gee, what a surprise! The Democrats got more you know votes for the Senate this year than they did. You know, you know. Oh, you know, gerrymandering. Okay, yes, gerrymandering. I can I can understand the annoyance of gerrymandering. I can't stand the annoyance the idea that gerrymandering just came along in the past decade or right. so. You know. Um, I mean, after oh, but this idea that I feel like John Belushi talking about you know the hibachi and just freaking out on Saturday Night Live. Uh, the uh, this idea that 
you know, Ian Milhauser. Mm-hmm. Oh well, okay. okay. I mean, like, what? Well, no, but I mean, the, he he. There's something wrong with that dude, right? But um, he tweeted, "There will never be free and fair elections in America so long as we have a Senate or something yeah. like that." I mean, you know, Jonah, when are you? Know, when's the last time Democrats controlled the Senate? Hours ago, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, 2013. It was not that, 2014. It wasn't that long ago, man. You know, I, here's the other thing, which you know, it's it's a it's an upside of our politics, but I think reflects the we got to you know we got to win this one. Um, there are not a lot of states in this country. And we think about, oh, we got red states and blue states. There are a whole bunch of states. Each party has won at least one seat statewide in recently. Mm-hmm. Like New Jersey is a deep blue state. Chris Christie just had two terms. Right. Wasn't that long ago George Pataki was governor of New York's, uh, New York state. Uh, there's a Republican governor in Massachusetts, Republican governor in Maryland. Um, the uh, came close in Oregon, Massachusetts, Massachusetts. You know, I mean, like you, you go down the list. There aren't that many states. Where you're like, well, this one's over, and there's no point to this. My home state of Virginia, uh, you know, like it, it's been really lousy. But 2009, we just mopped the floor with everybody, right? right? So the, the good news is, is that there are fewer one-party states where everything's all done. You know, like so good. Your vote matters, right? You you could actually have your party could control your state, and your party could, you know, your preferred candidate could win your state. Or your preferred candidate could lose your state. So now it all matters. So now you got to get out there and fight. So now you got, you know, like now it's like, you know, to the ramparts because there actually are those kinds of consequences and stuff like that. Um, but you were saying before about yeah. how this 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 aggressive anti, anti-constitutional uh-huh. – look, you know, everybody's in a bubble in one form or another. But the most active and loudest voices in the Democratic Party – and, and modern liberalism have zero interaction with red America, with conservatives or anything. Like, unless, like, you know, unless you talk to your neighbors, right? right? I mean, like, you know, um, and as a result of that, you know, to them, they are the enlightened and, and all that is good and holy is surrounded by them and, you know, hooray for Gaia and all that kind of stuff. And it's all deplorable, racist, horrible people who live in the, out, starting at the outer excerpts. And if you have that mentality... Of course, you're going to have politics marked by contempt and ever greater, you know, tension and, and heightened fury and, and all that kind of like, guys. You know, <laughs> if if your politics are, are are based upon contempt, you're going to get contempt back, and it's just going to be a cycle of that until somebody, you know, until something gets bad enough that we, you know, are forced to work together again. No, that's not going to happen. No alien invasion. Um, you know. <laughs> I, I, so for years, when conversation turns to this, because you're just being way too sensible. Uh, <laughs> When I talk about, you know, how bad things are, or this book, Suicide of the West, uh, I'll often just throw in a joke and say, you know, if I were doing this on cable TV, I'd now say, buy gold, right? <laughs> so I'm on a panel last week at this conference in New Orleans, or last Sunday, and I'm on with our former colleague, Mark Stein, ah. and uh, this guy, I want to say his name is Doug Stacy, who was a, who's a financial newsletter gold bug kind of guy and he made mark and i seem wildly upbeat and optimistic about things and i was this close to making interrupting him and making a buy gold joke and he said literally yeah look no look i mean we need to break up the country into a bunch of small different smaller countries and you know there's no getting out of this so just buy gold and he said it and he said it earnestly you know and um uh but uh I, this idea, the reason why the, this majoritarian thing, right, enrages me, you know, is that 
as you know, I am I am open to the idea that Donald Trump is violating democratic norms. I think he is violating democratic norms. To all of a sudden say that the Senate, the Constitution, and the Electoral College are illegitimate, <laughs> and the Supreme yes. Court are illegitimate because the Cal- California got to run up the aggregate vote is so much worse. I guess Donald Trump, to his and I say this to his credit, often doesn't know what he's talking about about this stuff, right? <laughs> These people, I mean, like for the Vox types yeah. to talk about this stuff yeah. is as a serious issue is fine if they want to repeal the Constitution, right? Yeah. If they want to say uh, we need a parliamentary style democracy, we're going to we're going to elect parties, and then the parties are going to select office holders. If 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 they want to get rid of states. Right. If they want presidents to presidential candidates to only campaign in L.A. County, Manhattan, uh, Dallas and a handful of other cities from now on, because the Electoral College doesn't mean anything, let them make that case. But they want it both ways. They want to say, oh, my God, Donald Trump is is talking down attacking the the Constitution while they're literally peeing from a great height all over the Constitution. Jonah, do not underestimate the possibility of these people are just plain stupid. Uh, you may have seen as we were coming in here, Joy Behar on The View today said that the only reason Republicans picked up seats in the Senate was because they were gerrymandered. And I just wanted to, you know, like I, I you know, I have not run across Meghan McCain. I just love to see Meghan McCain leap across the table and say, <laughs> you can't talk about the elections until you know which one is the House and the Senate. This is not that complicated, people. There's no gerrymandering of states. You know when we, we you know when we gerrymandered the states when we made the states. Right. That's what it was gerrymandered. That's, that's, that's what a state is. Yeah. Is a der- there's not a guy named Jerry last name Mander who's running around. But yeah, yeah. And yet, if we were to kill these people, we would be <laughs> we would be the ones that go to jail. Who's got the eliminationist rhetoric now? <laughs> no, it's just a. Do you know? Do you remember that Simpsons episode? Yes. Okay, yeah. where where Lisa ruins. Uh, Mr. Burns' chance to run for governor and and uh, Mr. Burns leaves and he says Ironic, isn't it, Smithers? This anonymous clan of slack-drawn troglodytes has cost me the election and yet if I were to have them killed I would be the one to go to jail. That's democracy for you. <laughs> um, all right, so we should probably just stop all this. Is there any other... Um, uh, mid- right, so one last midterm question. Huh? All of the... You know, Council of Nicaea thumbsuckery about whether it was a wave or not a wave or what is a wave and all that kind of stuff. I want to change the metaphor. Yeah. And instead of talking about a maritime or oceanic wave, in physics, mm. you can express things as a wave or as a particle. And it seems to me that, like, the way to look at this is it's a whole bunch of interesting particles out there, right? You can tell one story by connecting a certain number of dots or particles. Some of these particles, I think, are like strontium-90 and are going to have long-term consequences. But I don't think you can do the wave analysis where there is a fluid understanding of the whole thing because gaining in the Senate, losing the House, and the various, you know, losing these governorships in the upper Midwest is bad for Trump. Mm. Winning in Florida is good for Trump. Indiana, good. I mean, so it's it seems to me more pointillist than wavy. Okay. So uh, because this is an extraordinarily successful podcast, Jonah, I brought a visual aid. And so everyone can see it. I will hold it up to the microphone so everyone can see. So everyone has seen the um, the duck-rabbit optical illusion, right? Where you, you know, oh, you, yeah, look, yeah, yeah, yeah. you look at it one way, it's a rabbit. If you look at it this way, it's a duck, right? Okay. Yeah. That's the election. 
It the amazing thing is, is that that Jim is not doing this with a piece of paper. He's taken his jeans pockets and pulled them inside out. And there's a yes, there's actual. I have parts of a duck, and I have parts <laughs> of a. <laughs> All right, so anyway, uh, but uh, we'll but, we'll take a picture or find some version okay. of this for the website. But the gist being that. Yeah, if you look at the Senate races, it was a really good night for Republicans and Trump. If you look at the House races, it was a really bad night for Republicans. If you, you know, and and sometimes you're not going to get that simple, easy narrative. I, I think that if you're you know, look, for, and the the press conference today, we went on right before we uh, we came in here. But like when people are like, you know, oh, could you believe Trump was you know boasting about his victory in a year? Yes, this is Donald Trump. This is exactly right. what he does. What did you think he was going to come out contrite and say? Well, you know, I've I really feel chastened by all this, and I'm going to change my ways. I'm like, no, this is, he is who he is. You know. uh, have you heard the news that bears are using our national forests as toilets? <laughs> there you go. Um, uh, yeah, and the Pope is Catholic, although Michael Brennan Doherty might have a disagreement. Anyway, um, the so like for Republican, the good news for Republicans is you nominated Trump, you end up with a Trump presidency. You've gotten a bunch of the policies through that you wanted. You got two Supreme Court justices you wanted. You got to put up with the circus every day. And there are some of our colleagues who are like, eh, big deal. I don't think that's a big deal. I think it's really annoying. I, I think on any given day, he can find some new, like, as we talked about, you can have a really good economy. You, you have real accomplishments to talk about. But because his mental input is whatever the cryon says and Fox and Foose that mor- friends that morning, he'll go on to the tw- president's daily brief. Yeah. And the, then he will just, you know, and he'll go out there and we will start talking about stuff. He will bring up topics, you know, bring up this giant can of worms, short version. I I think the way the Constitution is written as is, uh, birthright citizenship is in there and there's no way to take it out. You'd have to change the Constitution. Mm. I also think birthright citizenship should not apply to people who come here illegally. Right, right, right. So I think we should change the Constitution. And when people say, Jim, that would be hard. It would take a long time. We need three quarters. Well, then let's get started on it. And maybe we can get this done by 2020 or 2022. Let's, yeah, let's, let's chop, chop. Because we give the, de- the Democrats and the left all kinds of grief every time they want to just do away with the Second Amendment. And we say, hey, it's in there. You can't just find some judge who's going to interpret the way. You know, we should do the same thing. Yeah, but yeah. there are people in this world who disagree with me, strangely enough. But if you're a Republican, you know, the outlook for 20 if you want Trump reelected, there's some good signs here. Uh, I don't think you're out of the woods. I think obviously there's a lot of road ahead. Depends on who the Democrats nominate. Depends on how the economy's going. I don't know if it's- Depends on how the investigations go in the House. Yeah. Uh, depends on what Mueller comes back with. Um, I don't know if we will be in as good an economic shape in two years from now just because boom periods have to end. Mm-hmm. Recessions show up sooner or later. Hopefully it's a mild one, but you never know what's going to happen. Uh, we'll be at, we be at war. Will we have a terror attack? Will we have more idiots like the mail bomber and the synagogue shooter and guys like that? You know, a lot of variables ahead. Um, having said that, if you want to move this country in a more rightward direction or a conservative direction, you know, things have been worse. Things have been pretty good for, you know, uh, this period. And, you know, look, um, there's an old saying in sports center of, you know, that guy's listed as day to day, but then again, aren't we all? We don't know who's going to be around a year from now, two years from now, or something like that. So the political the political landscape could look very different. So I'm not I'm I'm reasonably optimistic, Jonah, but that could just be because I'm going on vacation tomorrow. So yeah, well, I mean, I'm 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 more pessimistic because I I, I think about this more in terms of um, the long term argument, and uh, conservatism is getting pretty toxified for young people and for sort of bourgeois married people and all the rest and it's becoming a sort of a niche thing for old whiter people and I like old white people so I have some in my family that I'm very fond of Um, I'm becoming one myself that's my plan at least 
But uh, you're applying for. <laughs> Um, and a part of it is just my preferences. I like arguments. Mm-hmm. And um, I like making arguments and winning by making arguments rather than yeah. uh, insulting people and grinding it through. And I think the long-term damage to the Republican brand is greater. You know, and Jonathan Last poses this good thought experiment about how um, if you could go back to, say, 2000 and look at the Bush election, right? And you don't know how things are going to play out in, mm-hmm. in the future. But – if you could go back and say, um, will we be better off after eight years of Bush? You know, and then you have the Iraq war, um, the Iraq war, which does not go swimmingly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have the um, the 2004 effort to gin up voting on gay marriage, right? That then goes, uh, that gets a lot of people out and then the Supreme Court votes it down and all of a sudden, all these people are like, wait, it produces an enormous amount of cynicism in people, right? You don't get Obama if you don't have W. The arguments that, that W made for strong government conservatism and compassionate conservatism, all kind of stuff. Uh, you can go back and you can look at all those things and you can say, if I knew now, if I knew if I knew then what I know now, would we do it the same way? And I, and I think it is very, very unlikely that in 2030, we're going to look back and say, wow, this was really, this all worked out much better for Republicans and conservatism than Jonah Goldberg feared. I just, I'm just not convinced of that. But we, we will drink all right. in our 60s um, or our 70s. I can't do the math uh, when that time comes. Anyway, where are you going on vacation? Uh, you ready for this? So after all of my griping about how terrible Democrats uh, we're going to Chicago. Lovely. My wife and I. It's a great it's a fun town. You it's know, a great town. I have found like, you know, so as much as um, I realize the anarchists are burning it down now, but uh-huh. I like uh, uh, Portland. Uh-huh. Uh, I've enjoyed my visit to Seattle. You know, like I'm – look, I'm a, I think of myself as a man on the right and all that stuff. But man, I'm not trying to – these hipsters know how to eat. They do. Um, they, do. they know how to drink. You know, there's a lot of fun places that, you know, I just wouldn't want to live there because they're run by crazies. Yeah. But uh, the tourist sections are very nice. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of defecating in the street, which I'm not a big. Yeah, I'm not going to not, San Francisco. Not, not in Chicago, San Francisco, yeah, but, but no, in Portland is, yeah. there's some of that too. Oh, and speaking of defecating in the street, uh, Paul Krugman's columns. No, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, earlier last week we recorded a special bottle episode of the Remnant on homelessness because we knew we were going to have to do this rank punditry episode about <laughs> the midterms, and so we figured we would compensate by going way the other way on on rank wonkery. So it was an hour with this guy, Stephen Ide from the Manhattan Institute, purely on homelessness. I thought it was interesting. I think people will find it interesting. And if you were fed up with all the Trumpian stuff, I know a lot of listeners give up on this podcast because I, I refuse to talk about how glorious these times are. And I wallow in my remnancy. I don't think Donald Trump's name or any of that stuff comes up in the podcast. So give it a listen. And uh, other than that, Jim, as always, thank you for being here. Jonah, I enjoy this every single time. And I believe, you know, so I know, I know Ramesh has done more, but has any other NR colleague done three episodes? No, you've done more than Ramesh. Ramesh has only done one. Really? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I am the champion amongst NR people? Is that right, Jack? Ben Sass has done more. Well, I mean, that goes with that. He sleeps uh, on your couch, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, pretty much. Um, uh, Charles Murray's done more. But that's about it. I think. All right. Right? I'm looking forward to that Velvet Rope Five Timers Club. Uh, yeah, yeah. The swag bag you get for that is unbelievable. <laughs> um, all right. So, uh, Jack, is there anything else that we need to – I know we've gone long, and so we don't need to do 
our usual various and sundry stuff? Uh, well, this is unexpected, but I have I have a message for everyone. Uh oh, <laughs> just chill. I mean, this is my this is my 2018 midterm takeaway. It's just an election. Like people lost in some places, won in others. I mean, the people who lost in some places will win in the future in those same places, and vice versa. I mean, it's just just it's just politics. It happens. People win, people lose. Uh, Republicans will win again in Wisconsin someday. I don't know. I just I'm not. I, people pundits like you two try to impugn all these this this incredible meaning into all these elections. And yeah, there's some of that, but sometimes it's I don't just. I think we did that. I thought we were saying. I mean, look, I I don't think this is the most important election in our lifetimes. I think that's one of the dumbest things people say. But did you? Did I, I, uh, no. This I is was, the life we have chosen, no, Jack. Also, like, <laughs> I, I was, this is life and death. <laughs> this is Sparta. Yeah, I was with. I think Ramesh. Uh, wrote a column just before the midterm saying that this is one of the most inconsequential elections of our lifetime. Kind of feel that way. I mean, it's just. But I, this but is. I, I I agree with that on policy grounds. Nothing's going to come out of Congress, right? Yeah. Um, I'm glad that uh, cocaine no. Mitch can get more judges on. Right, that's a good thing. Look, it was like if Clarence Thomas retires. Ruth Bader Ginsburg goes on to her heavenly reward and Stephen Breyer goes on to the heavenly – this could be a very consequential midterm elections. I agree with you that. You can confirm judges with 54 votes that you wouldn't be able to do with 51 votes. I agree with that entirely. So, you know. Um, yeah. But, could, but that, also, like the duck rabbit. Can everyone see it on the microphone? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's very visible. Um, I mean it could – yeah, it could be consequential. But uh, just in terms of the stuff that actually affects your day-to-day life – like, there's plenty of other things going on in most people's lives besides the oh, midterm elections. I agree with that entirely. I mean, but – and this is why we don't do all that much rank punditry about around here. <laughs> but this is this is like Black Friday for rank punditry. You have the, the, to do exactly, it after yes. the midterms. You know. I mean, well, I hate Black Friday too. Well, well, so. wait, but when you say that you know there are other things going on in people's lives, I just want you to – maybe you can insert on the website. Jim just stared blankly dumbfounded. <laughs> what is he talking about? What, I understand the words coming out of his face, but they may yeah. have no meaning for me. <laughs> Um, all right, so everybody, uh, thank you for the reviews. Uh, thank you for uh, going on iTunes, uh, giving a positive review, uh, subscribe, all that jazz. Uh, the Remnant Pod at uh, Gmail, at Jonah Remnant on Twitter. I'm going to be at Villanova on Thursday. You can go to the website to find out information. And then next week, I am at Roanoke College. And um, other than that, I think that's about it it oh and we have a new episode of glop that we recorded today i highly recommend the last 20 minutes because it is so dark deeply dark and disturbing plus uh rob long tells an amazing story at the top of the show so other than that uh thanks for listening and i'll see you next time no you want this podcast are really us what number are we thinking of 
69, dudes! 